This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com forward slash B-E. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to our episode today of the Authority Podcast on the B-E Podcast Network. I'm Ross Romano, and I'm excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Dr. Carrie Borkowski, who's going to speak with me about a book that's going to give us uh, all a lot to reflect on, I think. And um, Carrie's an associate professor and research fellow in the School of Education at Loyola University in Maryland. She's also a lead coach in the Johns Hopkins University School of Education. And her book is Dancing with Discomfort, a framework for noticing, naming, and navigating our in-between moments. And the book is available from John Cat Educational. Carrie, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here, Ross. Great to great to chat with you. Um, so let's just go right here to start um, because I think you know this book clearly is. I, I, this isn't my assumption. It's not just an idea that occurred to you one day. I think the <laughs> ideas in here are a culmination of a lot of life experience and professional experience. Um, so I would love for you to tell me, you know, what uh, really inspired you eventually mm-hmm. to end up writing this book and, and why now, right? Like when you got to a certain point where you said, you know what, now's the time where this book you know, really needs to be written. Yes, such a good question. And I mean, I'll I'll say right off the bat, I think writing a book for me was one of those bucket lists, right? So I sort of had it in my mind. I didn't know when, I didn't know how, but it was something I wanted to do. So I'll, I'll say that first. And then I think, look, you know, as you get older, you spend more time in your profession and you feel like you've built up some efficacy and some experience I started to recognize that, you know, a lot of my sort of bumps and bruises along the way were really the the sort of jewels, if you will, of learning. And I, and I was reflecting a lot on that for me personally. And then, of course, as an educator, and really this isn't this isn't exclusive to educators, anyone who's working with someone as they develop and grow into something, you notice that the moments that are most beneficial are often those moments of what some researchers call productive struggle, right? It's, Mm -hmm. you know, that discomfort, the nervousness and, and our ability. It's not really the sort of what you come with in terms of skills and expertise and all the knowledge. It's really, and and I know we've heard this before, it's how you show up and react in a moment, like what's your next action. And so I think, you know, the collective, my own personal journey as both a student and just a person growing up, becoming a parent and being an educator now of doctoral students. And and we can talk more about the uniqueness of the practitioner doctor that I was teaching in. It just felt like I had a lot to say, Ross. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I made some connections. We were talking about networking before we hit the recording. And I just, some of it was luck, some of it was timing, and some of it was my own persistence that, you know, led me to start writing the book. Yeah. And I mean, from a a reader's perspective, 
um, and thinking about uh, where uh, an individual may be in their professional journey or, mm. or even their personal um, experiences. Is there a time when you say, this is, if you're, if you're going through this right now, this is the most important time to pick up this book, <laughs> right? And then, I know you write a, a section about how to use the book and mm -hmm. kind of guiding the readers on, okay, here's how to make the best use of this. And um, it really is the type of content that, you know, people can read at any time and internalize the ideas and apply them. But also mm -hmm. we all know there's also certain times where it's really critical to say, I don't have, I don't have any answers right now. I need something. All yeah. right, here, here's, here's what we have for you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's so interesting that we're talking now, Ross, because it's been about a year since the book, you know, mm -hmm. was was released. And so, of course, um, you know, I always come to the table as a learner and I'm really learning a lot about sort of the role of the book. And so I think a year ago I would have said to you the obvious response to that is anytime anyone's experiencing what you would perceive as a transition. Right. Whether mm -hmm. it's starting school. I mean, it's kind of apropos that we're getting close to the first days of school, right? Going back to school, whether you're the student, the teacher, the professor, if you're changing jobs, if you're in between jobs, um, I think this book can be supportive, can be scaffolding, can be sort of ideas for creating potentially new habits, you know, so that you can manage these things. I would say, though, a year out, I would probably amend that response to say, I would pick up the book before one of those sort of seminal moments happen, because what I learned and really what I was hoping to message in the book is that we need to practice this work. And, and I talk about sort of practice versus performance. And, and what I kind of mean by that is don't wait till that like big job change or big shift to work on these things, like practice in a more comfortable, familiar setting so that you can start to, you know, work out some of the kinks and iterate and and redevelop. So I really do think it's anyone who's interested in figuring out strategies to be more present, even in their day to day, not just in the transition moments. Yeah. And, and you do write about, you know, how these are this is something that can be practiced, right? Or, you know, you, you get more repetitions over time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are, what are some of the scenarios there? So one, uh, when you talk about practicing, is it the type of thing where you may want to create situations in which, mm. you know, you need to practice these skills? Mm -hmm. um, are there really kind of smaller moments that are happening to us daily that we're just not necessarily recognizing as opportunities to work through these mm -hmm. skills? How, how do you, how would you kind of set the context for when our good opportunities to kind of practice this. So then when it, when there's a big situation going yeah. on, right, we have a little, a little bit of uh, skill development under our belts. Yeah. Another really good question. I mean, I think there are multiple responses to that. I mean, I think one is, I think learning to just notice a moment and if it's, so I'm a runner, I, I love to exercise. I'm a runner and a biker. And what I've noticed over the course of the last couple of years, because I've really worked intentionally on some of what I wrote in the book and what I've seen in other other books I'm reading is even as a runner who follows a routine and a regiment, there were places that I could fine tune, you know, to push myself to just get a little bit more of a nugget or a morsel out of that and, and increase the benefit or increase the, the enjoyment, whatever it is. So I think even those things that we do, well, I would say, especially those things that we often do on autopilot, maybe practice for a day or a week. What is it like to not be on autopilot? What would it be like to ask yourself one probing question? How am I feeling right now? What am I noticing? Why is this? What about this is important to me, right? Just, just the practice of asking yourself good questions can can go a long way. And I don't think it matters what situation you're in um, to, to practice that sort of routine. Yeah. So I think, you know, one transition that's probably quite common among a lot of our listeners is that uh, we have folks who either are in or are in the process of pursuing or transitioning into administrator roles mm, yeah. in their schools. And, uh, Obviously, this is a planned and desired change yeah. in one's career, but yet it is 
dramatic. It's a completely different set of responsibilities. Uh, it's a different skill set. Uh, it's you know, something that really is going, it's going to, there's going to be some discomfort once you get there. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering in a, in a couple of ways, one, for those who are navigating that transition themselves, you know, what are some of the basics for navigating a change of that nature? Okay, this is something I wanted. Mm -hmm. I pursued it. It was part of, you know, however, I'm going to be learning a lot. <laughs> and then two, once I get there, or maybe I've already been in this role for a while, and this is no longer a change for me, but I'm in a role where I am managing a lot of other people. And part of the nature of my job is that I am going to be putting other people into these situations mm -hmm. where they, right? So yeah. what do I need to know about this so that I am equipping them and preparing them and saying, look, here's what's coming. Mm -hmm. I, I have to ask you to do this. But um, so let's start first with, okay, I'm transitioning myself. I'm going from teacher to administrator. I'm happy. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm also a little nervous. What, what do I have to do? I think that anyone who is able to articulate what you just did, which is I'm noticing that I'm really excited and I'm also noticing that I'm nervous, you've already started the process, right? Because part of the book is really, again, picking your head up and paying attention to what's going on in your mind, your heart, and your body as you make this transition. And I would say, I as you were talking, Ross, I wrote down, I hope that everyone is celebrating Right. Because typically you can find something, especially in the transitions that we've selected, you should pause and take time to celebrate. Don't just run, you know, full board into into this new transition. The next thing I would do, you know, and, and this isn't always linear, but one opportunity that you'd have in these new transitions is to reexamine what's the priority for you. And so in, in sort of the coaching world and in the business world, we call that your core values or your pillar. Right. And so examining what's important and a really easy thing, Ross, that people can do is, and we call in coaching, we call it peak experience. And what you ask yourself to do, you take five minutes and you sit down in a quiet place and you ask yourself, you know, describe a moment or an experience either in this context or that brought you to this context that you just know this is why you're here. And you write for five minutes and then you spend a couple of minutes reflecting on what are you noticing that came out for you, right? And through that process, you can sometimes unearth what's a priority and what's important to you. And if you put a stake, like literally think, I'm thinking about, you know, going explorer, expeditioner, right? Putting a stake in the place where they are. If you are able to put a stake in those core values, now you have an anchor because when something isn't going well, well, why isn't it going well? Is it rubbing up against my core values? What in the system or in myself is getting in the way, right? What do right. I need to do to course correct? Um, and I think that knowing your core values, knowing where you are um, is critical to this work. Yeah, no, I, I certainly agree with that. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's true in you know, so many situations as well. It's having that um, anchor that reference point. That's something yep. that we've uh, talked about in some recent episodes is based on whatever you're working on, whatever your approach is, when in doubt, what do I go back to? Yeah. So yeah. for some people, it's that question of why, you know, what's the purpose of mm -hmm. this work and is yep. what we're doing adhering to that, which of course, that's going to lead to your core values. Yeah. Um, you know, for others, it may be different, but it's saying, okay, when I get into that situation where I am in uncharted territory mm -hmm. and I did not, I, I don't know the answer. What do I look at to give me the answer? <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, if you know those values uh, and, and you typically adhere to them, the answer will become clear. Yeah. Um, I mean, I will say too, Ross, just to add on to that, you know, your listeners might think, well, Carrie, that's such a, you know, of course, that's such an obvious answer. And I would say, yeah, it is an obvious answer. And people, especially leaders, don't always take the time that's required to do that self-examination. And I think to your second point about if you're leading people, what can you do to support people? I think one, you can model that we value giving yourself space for that self-reflection and examination. And two, you as a leader can create that space 
and place mm-hmm. for your teachers, whomever, whomever is reporting to you to do some of that work. So yes, it is obvious that that's what we should do, but our system and our sort of mindset doesn't always prioritize the time to do the work. So. Right. Yeah. And ultimately, yeah, it might seem, I don't know, um, easier said than done or even like a sort of a cliched response, but it's true. And it is uh, entirely consistent across all areas of our lives where we're in a position where we're presented with untold options and we need to make good choices and take the actions that we think will put us in the direction we want to be in. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there were no options, then there would be nothing impressive or requiring skill to navigate them right yeah if um if you're i I don't know if if you're a 18 year old in high school and you're at a party and somebody offers you alcohol um you you know make a decision based on probably some predetermined beliefs that you have around what's legal, what's illegal, what you believe is, mm-hmm. you know, healthy, more, whatever. If nobody ever offers it to you and you didn't have it, then it wouldn't, you know, you, okay, that's great. But you, you didn't have to navigate anything. So right. it's kind of like <laughs> having those tethers, uh, you know, some of the situations are, are less black and white than that. Um, and there it's internal action mm-hmm. and it's our own self-reflection. And yet, um, you know, that's how we prepare for it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one of the things that I think about is, you know, you write about normalizing the discomfort. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that word uh, normalize is kind of different people take it in different ways. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes it's more, uh, and, and it's intended to be more of a proactive, inclusive, you know, terminology to say, look, these things that typically were considered either unpleasant, undesirable, Mm -hmm. you know, unusual outside of the mainstream, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not, (laughs) they're in the range of normal experience. And we Mm -hmm. just need to understand that other people may see it as defeatist in a sense Mm -hmm. to say, well, I guess we just, you know, what, we can't get rid of this. So we just have to normalize it. But the way Mm -hmm. I think about it in this case is okay. Oh, the unanticipated transitions in our lives that are inevitable, they take many shapes and forms, right? Mm-hmm. One of the examples is an unexpected job loss, mm-hmm. um, but it could also be an unexpected job gain, right? The recruiter mm-hmm. reaches out to you and offers you a position you never planned for, and it's really great, but it's also mm-hmm. throwing you off because you weren't planning on it. <laughs> Um, or, you know, joining an organization or dealing with a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they come in all shapes and forms. Uh, I not, the way I kind of think about it is if there were none of these things, could we possibly live an interesting life? If everything <laughs> that ever happened to us was exactly what we expected and preordained, I mean, would that be a better alternative? I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, the answer's no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Well, right now I'm, I'm, I feel highly, I feel competent enough to manage my discomfort. So I would not want to live a life that's not uncomfortable. Right. Cause then, I mean, you know, like when, when there's sort of the opposites, they sort of help illuminate the importance of the other. Right. So Mm -hmm. the, the light and the dark, so as a a very simplistic example, I mean, when I say normalize, I think what I'm thinking about too is, and again, the research you know, you can read lots of research on this is often the human reaction to something uncomfortable or hard. We think either I'm not doing it right. It's not good or I'm not good enough. Right. We use we use that feeling of discomfort as some kind of outcome measure. Mm-hmm. And what I'm trying to help people understand is that what normalizing means included in your expectations. When you take a learning journey, whether it's a new job, being a student, retiring for the first time, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be ebbs and flows, peaks Mm -hmm. and valleys, whatever your metaphor is. And we, I think, and this is true. And and I learned this, you know, sometimes the hard way, again, as a runner, one thing I love about trail running is you don't run 
the requisite distance to make sure you make that distance, you learn to run, to practice, to problem solve. Because you know, as a trail runner, even as a marathoner, if you're out there for four to eight hours, something is going to go wrong. It just does. And so I think the normalizing is just include it in your expectations. Like we have to get away from this sort of, I'm successful if it's perfect, right? Mm -hmm. And I think my wanting this normalization is seeing so many students, especially graduate students who come into doctoral studies and what they're reading are these refined, peer-reviewed, drafted, drafted, drafted final products of a research paper. And they have no sense initially that between the idea and that published paper was a lot of discomfort. It's part of the process. So even the the Steve Jobs of the world, the Brene Browns of the world, think of your, you know, a successful person in your life. They've had bumps and bruises. And I'm just saying, for me, normalization is it's all part of the mess, right? And we need to learn to embrace it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and one of the things you kind of, you referenced uh, even in the introduction to the book is the process of guided discovery that mm-hmm. is um, present in you know psychological practice and you know in that context going back through things that you've done or been through or navigated in your life and having a new perspective on it and saying oh you know actually I did pretty well there or mm-hmm. that thing that at the time I wasn't too thrilled about did set me up for this thing that happened later and mm-hmm. um it relates a lot to something that I've been thinking and talking a lot about, which is, uh, you know, all aspects of communication that are happening in, in schools and school districts, and particularly around, um, you know, the needs of administrators to better engage their faculty mm-hmm. because of what well, we have recruitment and retention concerns and, and cultural, you know, school culture concerns and trying to figure out, okay, what's really happening in the profession and what's happening in our schools. And also to engage our communities, we need to get a better grasp on all the good things we're doing all the time so that we can communicate that proactively so that it's not like people only hear about the one bad thing that happens. And a lot of it is the same, right? Because even by the uh, nature of me coming to you once a week and saying, oh, like, what did you do this week? Or, you know, what were some good things that happened and giving you the opportunity to talk about it in the moment, you probably weren't thinking about all those things as achievements. You were probably thinking about, Oh, this test yesterday, my kids didn't do as well as I wanted them to, or I had this behavioral issue or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then just by talking about, well, you know, this, this, Oh, actually that was pretty good. You know, it sets us up. I, I mean, it's kind of, you can be better equipped to, normalize and anticipate what's to come ahead by looking backward and saying oh that's what it looked like when i (laughs) i already did that over the last few weeks and that's what it looked like so if the next few weeks are similar to that then i can handle that yeah yeah and i think what i was thinking as you were also talking ross was what comes up for me and and you see this in the mindfulness literature is this notion of non-attachment Right. Because what happens, I've seen it personally, and I have kids in school, I see it with our teachers is, you know, a teachers, especially during the pandemic, well, anytime teachers are doing the best they can, and they're doing a great job. And for the most part, and parents come in upset one night, right. And if a teacher hasn't done the work or been given the space to do the work around some of the things we're talking about, I mean, you know, the emotions hijack the moment. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, they really do. You, you, you aren't neurologically. I'm not a neuroscience, but for scientists, but I understand that you are not neurologically able to sort of manage that right in that moment in terms of your cognition, because your emotions have hijacked that moment. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you are able to start practicing non-attachment and think about discomfort emerging in these moments, what you might be able to do is show up curious and notice that, oh, Ross is upset, right? It's not, it's no longer about me as the teacher of your son or daughter. It's something's going on with Ross and I need to pay particular attention. And now I'm going to ask him another question. 
makes it a very different situation. If you can, it's hard, like, don't get me wrong. This takes lots and lots of practice, but normalizing that discomfort really can give our teachers, our administrators, our parents agency, mm-hmm. right. To show up and be present and ask better questions instead of being led by our emotions or whatever sort of is in that moment. Right. Right. Yeah. And you, I mean, you bring up an interesting perspective of the, the parent mm-hmm. who's coming to the school and who is, you know, navigating all these things in their own life yeah, and who is, you know, may or may not um, have the vocabulary to express it. And a, a lot of times, you know, and what I've been investigating with schools is basically when are the schools making it so that the parent doesn't have that information because we're not mm. communicating enough. We're not telling them what we're doing. We're not you know, keeping them informed enough about all these things. And so they're feeling all of this anxiety, stress, um, concern about what may or may not be going on in the school. And I mean, how can, you know, so let's say absent all that, that's, that's, this is what's occurring. And I'm working Mm -hmm. in the school and I'm a teacher, I'm an administrator, and I can tell this is what parents are dealing with. How can I use my awareness of this process to help me kind of navigate that without, uh, you know, I'm not going to lecture to them and tell, well, you need to notice and name and navigate, but to kind of say, all right, (laughs) let me respond to them in a way Mm -hmm. that hopefully helps this move forward. Um, You know, (laughs) essentially, okay, I've gotten good at doing this for myself, but what do I do when when I can tell somebody else is having a, a challenge? Before we move on, let's hear from our sponsors. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, you know, our our learning theorists, you know, our social learning theorists would tell us that, you know, still focusing on how we show up in a space can have an impact on the other people in the room, right? I mean, Bandura would say that in terms of modeling and things. So mm-hmm. I think being able to, you know, another question that comes up in coaching in these moments that you describe. So if we have a parent or a caregiver who shows up in this space, something you can sort of quietly ask yourself is what's 2% true about this moment, mm-hmm. right? Which means as hard as it is to hear everything this person is saying, because they don't have, they're, they're so anxious. They're advocating for their kid. They don't have the language to articulate it. What's 2% true. Well, what's probably 2% true. If I were thinking about it is this caregiver loves their child and cares deeply about their education. We have that in common. So maybe Mm -hmm. you as the teacher, the administrator could reflect back to the parent and say, gosh, I am really seeing how committed you are to your person's uh, education. Let's talk. Right. And so what I have noticed is when you're able to interrupt that sort of upset or rage or whatever it is with a curious noticing or question, Sometimes it, the person just like sits up for a second, like, wait, I thought they were going to defend themselves till the cows come home, but they didn't, Mm -hmm. they reflected back. Right. Um, so it's, it's those, I, I'm, I've been reading, um, James Clear's atomic habits, Mm -hmm. which, you know, huge bestseller. And he says in the book that it's not the big things that make the changes. It's the very small everyday tiny changes in our habits and our routines that lead to huge impact. And so, yeah, that noticing. And it's um, perhaps those little habits and that practice that you have with, uh, you know, welcoming, inviting, or, Mm -hmm. or actually, I guess it's, it's the practice that you have with navigating that can make you more open to inviting what you know will be uncomfortable moments for example talking to kids about their school experience right and saying all right I'm, i want to ask them about this but their answer is i might not they might make me uncomfortable i might <laughs> not like right. what they say right but i really do want to know and yeah. i want to be able to do something about it and on the one hand i can just kind of try to avoid it or i can lean into mm-hmm. it and say okay i'm ready to you know, you talk about concepts like non-attached. I, I'm ready to be able to calmly, you know, uh, accept this. And then 
understand where they're coming from and then navigate it um, yeah. and help them when they're challenged by the same thing. And, you know, circling back to what we talked about with administrators, being in a position where the nature of your job may be that you're going to have to put people in positions where they're going to be dealing with a transition, unexpected, sometimes it's negative. Um, one of the things that comes up a lot uh, from both the giver and receiver is feedback, which mm -hmm. I think causes extreme discomfort for a lot of people, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Some people just don't really want to receive a period because they've been preconditioned to not really believe it's valuable or to see it as punitive in nature or yep. and so maybe i'm receiving feedback that's making me question a lot of things or put me in a position where i'm really uncertain where i stand um, or maybe i have to give it and i know that the person who's going to be receiving it has had a bad history with this i don't want that to continue i want this to be worthwhile to them but I also know that there's certain things about this discussion that are going to, it could potentially put them spiraling if I don't approach it correctly. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, how does that kind of resonate with you as a, as a kind of a micro moment where these, these feelings do come into play? And um, if, if so, what would you kind of say about approaching that from, from either side? Yeah. I mean, there's so so much packed in there. So the first thing I, I picked up on was this idea of the question comes up, should I just avoid this or can mm -hmm. I avoid this? And I'm going to okay. tell you quite plainly that you can avoid it. Like mm -hmm. even if you can avoid it at noon today, it's going to come up in some other form later around down the road. So I just wish people would give up on that one because mm -hmm. you just, these things are going to come up somewhere. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would would notice from your your um, question is um, you you said, how do I show up calmly? I just want to be clear that I don't for me, the goal is not necessarily to show up calmly, because, again, to me, that goes back to smoothing over okay. to me. The goal is to show up in a way that, again, going back to that non-attachment, you could say to someone, oh, my gosh, like I'm hearing you say that and it's it's making me feel so upset because I'm so committed to the education of your student, right? You can be honest with boundaries about how you're feeling. Perhaps you just don't, you know, open up the floodgates, right? We have mm -hmm. to include boundaries. So I just want to, I want to say that, you know, about the sort of emotion thing. Um, feedback, you're right. I mean, we have a wonderful superintendent in our district. I had a meeting with him the other day. And what he said about feedback is he is trying to instantiate a practice of feedback all the time mm -hmm. so that it's not just in those moments where someone's doing poorly, right? So that right. people don't see it as punitive. And so I think while you're working on those sorts of things, the reality is you also have to put out the regular fires of every day, right? This isn't going to change overnight. So I think to, to answer your question, like how do you manage that situation where you have to give someone feedback who perhaps isn't um, you know, going to take it well. I think this is where in the book I talk about sort of setting the stage and sort of the pre-work that you can do. I think perhaps there's a pre-communication with this person before you actually sit down and talk about the feedback, right? I mean, I think, you know, a leader who has, has done their own work and is prepared to have these conversations could have a conversation with someone about what the purpose of feedback um, what what the goal of this feedback is, how you are trying to support the person and share with them areas of opportunity and growth and areas where you're excelling, right? Before you even get in. And I've done this, like, look, I have reviewed lots and lots of draft dissertations in my life. And sometimes we don't use red pen anymore, but sometimes there's lots of track changes in a document. And I know this student, if I email this document to this student, Right. It's just going to put them in a corner rocking back and forth. And so what I do instead of sending the document is I say, can we set up a phone call, a Zoom call, and we talk about what's coming, right? So mm -hmm. you don't have to like land it, the feedback right, right away. You could do some, some pre-work. And gosh, I have to tell you, Ross, if I had a boss who came to me and wanted to have that kind of conversation, wow, that's that's pretty powerful, I think. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, there, there's those significant things we can do to uh, really authentically show our investment in mm-hmm. the situation and saying this isn't going to make it easy to receive feedback that you're not that's not entirely positive however it makes it easier for you to know what to do with it because we're going to remove the ambiguity around my intentions (laughs) whether or not I want you to be successful um, whether or not I'm even aware that this is okay I I understand this is probably not going to to be a little bit upsetting however the reason I'm doing it is because I am invested in your success and I want you to but it does take that additional bit of effort, um, mm-hmm. which starts with being mindful and saying, I, you know, I care how they, I care how they receive this and what they're able to do with it. I don't yeah. just care about the backlash I'm going to get, yeah. <laughs> which then I mean, leads to avoidance, right? <laughs> I mean, what a, what a, um, I don't know, it would be sort of a revolutionary sort of day of PD, but wouldn't it be cool if a leader of a school building or district said, Today, for our hour of professional learning, we're going to explore our relationship with feedback. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give you any feedback, but we're going to go through some exercises and activities to explore what it mean, what feedback means, different ways we give and receive feedback, and explore our relationship. And when I say our relationship, we all have sort of gut reactions mm-hmm. to feedback. We all have emotions that we conjure up. I bet we all have a story. I know I do of when I got horrible feedback and how I reacted horribly. Um, and that, believe it or not, like that all is part of the package. When you receive today's feedback, that's all in there, right? And so I'm not, a th- as a coach, I'm not a therapist. So I'm not here to resolve past issues with feedback. But what I can do is I can work with teachers to help them recognize that maybe some of that emotion isn't actually about this feedback. It's about other things that you've experienced from other bosses or supervisors or parents about feedback. So, right. Excellent. So is, is that any part of, I guess, you know, when you're developing, you're developing skill set and also a mindset Mm -hmm. um, to be able to navigate these transitions successfully, you know, does, does any part of it relate to, um, our individual, healthy, I think, conception of our relative sphere of influence, I guess I would say. For example, one of the major transitions you, you know, reference as an example is a pandemic, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, none of us can control whether or not there's a pandemic. Right? Yeah. It's it's happening. We're living in it. And so we go down a level and a level to we figure out, okay, what are the things that we can influence or control? Why am I feeling a certain way about how things are happening there? What is going on? And then what might I want to do about it? Um, I I just kind of am thinking like, because so much of it is obviously a lot of us, if we're suffering from, you know, anxiety that leads to essentially paralysis of, of taking action is, we we're hung up on things that we can't do anything about. Mm-hmm. And if we're kind of perseverating on that, that's never going to change or mm-hmm. it might change, but it won't change due to anything that we did. <laughs> but then if we go down a little, a couple more levels, it's like, okay, well, here's what I can do. And here's okay. And I mean, I, I don't know if that's a, a, a context that you ever typically present this in or that Mm -hmm. um, people are thinking through as they're figuring out, okay, how do I basically get myself in the right mindset Mm. to approach this? Uh, Because if I'm kind of focused on the wrong things, it's, it's just really hard to get there. Yeah, it is. And I think not only are we focused on the wrong things, but especially with your example of a pandemic, this is a place as a world we had never been before, Mm. because in other situations, at least we had sort of, you know, examples of how it, what the outcome was right for in this one, we didn't know. And so I guess if I were giving, you know, a talk or, or sharing this with a group of individuals, you know, I would say that it's really important to think about being curious and adopting a learning mindset in the moment, right? Just staying curious. And with that, I mean, seeing every opportunity 
as an opportunity to learn that perhaps you're not going to know there is going to be uncertainty. And this is where that discomfort comes back. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause like uncertainty also creates discomfort. Um, and so I would say being able to explore that. The other thing I would say, and we started our conversation off with this Ross is go back to your core values, right? Go back to your priorities and what's important. And maybe during the pandemic, if you did that sort of peak experience or one of the many hundred ways you can mine for core values, maybe you're noticing that your core values have shifted a little bit and that's okay. They, you add, you subtract, you, they change over time. If you go back to your core values, then you can start asking your questions like, you know, if before the pandemic, you used to meet your friends at a coffee shop every Monday, and you're just desperate for that, ask yourself, what was it about that experience that was important? Mm -hmm. Was it being physically in that coffee shop? Probably not. It was conversation, connection, being in the know about your friends, building relationships. So once you know that, then you can start to say, how, what are the ways that I could find that in other things that I do? Right. So what did, by doing that sort of work, Ross, it helps you to focus away from the problem that you cannot solve mm -hmm. to a challenge that perhaps you can solve, you can address. And the cool thing is if you show up curious, you may solve it in ways you never imagined were possible. They weren't even on your short list. I mean, who knew that Zoom was going to be, you know, everywhere, right? right? right. In, the, in two years or, or who knew that remote work was going to be something that just became, of course, you can work remotely, right? right? So those are simple examples, but it really allows you to sort of be creative about what those possibilities might be to reach what's important, the priorities that you have in those experiences. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, as a reminder to our listeners, the book is called uh, Dancing with Discomfort, a framework for noticing, naming and navigating our in-between moments. And I want to give you that reminder because we have, um, so we have those three phases, right? Notice, name, navigate. I'm wondering, is there a particular point uh, in there where you've observed the most common obstacle as somebody is working through there? Um, is it at the beginning? You know, some people would think, okay, well, obviously the third step is the hardest, but you know, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm wondering, okay, if I'm newly approaching this and I'm thinking about how I'm going to go about it, where, where might I expect that this part might be extra difficult? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think the easy answer, Ross, is it's going to be different for different people, right? Because different people have tolerances for uncertainty and things. So that's the first thing I will say. I would I would suggest that the navigate part feels the least difficult to people because it's like doing. It's like a tan it feels tangible. We know what navigate is. There's some places in the book that are mm. very clear about strategies. And if you're a teacher, that's like thinking about pedagogy and strategy and connection, right? Like that feels familiar. I honestly think if you're new to this kind of mindset, mm -hmm. the noticing and naming is the hardest part because it goes mm. back to what we talked about before with core values is Someone might say, of course, you should know what your values, your priorities, your pillars, whatever you want to call them are. But following the of course is, I don't really know how to do that work. Right? right. And so I spend a lot of time with new coaching clients, just easing them into um, noticing. I know that sounds so silly, but mm -hmm. just that, you know, instantiating or routinizing the habit of noticing takes practice, right. um, you know, and it's, and it's, again, it's that cumulative work of doing it. I'm not asking, I never ask a client if we settle on some accountability for the, in the session, I never ask a client to try something for a week or a month. I say, let's try it for a day. Let's try it for the afternoon and let's, and then check in with yourself, see what worked, what didn't, and then tweak it. Right. It's, right. you have to set, set small, manageable goals for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that I don't know, it, it, it's, it, 
possible to maybe set checkpoints for mm-hmm. yourself to say, I mean, if I think about it in my own recent life here, it was about seven months ago that I decided to leave a full-time position and start my own company. And what I did at the time was say, all right, six months out is my checkpoint. I, you know, there's Mm -hmm. some things I have enough information to say that I believe I know how things will go to a certain extent. There's a lot of other things I have no idea of. And basically at six months, I will look back and reflect and say, what's working, what's not, what's good, you know, and, and, uh, and then it would make the next phase that much easier. And it wouldn't, it's not about winning or losing you know Mm -hmm. so much of what we do is uh is evaluated in those terms yeah and ultimately you know i think of a a lot of the relationship between this framework uh and the mindset for this framework and carol dweck's work on growth mindset and and how we really do have to work through some challenges to have a better understanding of our strengths and know and to be able to dispense with the imposter syndrome and understand that I actually do know how to do these things because Mm -hmm. I did the hard work and I navigated it and I thought about it and I reflected on it. So Mm -hmm. if we're never challenged on that, um, that's when we say, oh, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I did because everything kind of came easily. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know if for certain folks who are saying, okay, I'm, I'm willingly going into something that's going to be challenging. I don't know how it's going to go. Set, you know, set a, a, a point a little ways down the road um, and say, I'm not going to stress about how, how I did until I get there. Yeah. Yeah. I think, look, I think having waypoints or markers or checkpoints are all important. Mm -hmm. And I think depending on, again, what your priorities are and what your needs are, that will sort of, um, you know, form some of those checkpoints. I would say at a more granular level, I would encourage individuals or groups who want to take on some of this work to think very simply, right? Like you can have big goals, whether it's financial or going up the corporate ladder, whatever is, of course you should have those sorts of goals. But I, it's not about, it's an and, yes and. I think that perhaps other considerations would be, for example, what's the sort of aspirational identity that you're trying to integrate into your current identity? So for example, if, if I wanna be a writer, right? Like I wanted to write a book. I was, I really was, I told you at the beginning, it was a bucket list. So I had to start thinking about, well, what is it? What is an identity of a writer? What are the habits of a writer? Well, writers probably write a little bit every day. So I had to start, I wanted to start replicating that and creating that habit. So perhaps for a district leader, you know, you want he or she or they to be thinking about what's the kind of identity that I want to bring to this role And then what are the associated habits? And if you start to do that, then you can start to say, just like you would for running or or learning an instrument or whatever it is, I'm going to do this a little bit every day. And then I'm going to add another habit a little bit in that day. And then by that checkpoint, you probably can sort of look at what are the habits that I've adopted why haven't I been able to adopt that one habit I thought was important? What's getting in my way, right? So then it leads to other questions and curiosities about how maybe maybe I decided that wasn't a habit in that identity, or maybe I decided that it wasn't important to what I'm trying to achieve, or gosh, maybe it is important and I need to adjust this way, right? So I think you can have large sort of the sort of traditional checkpoint goals, and I think you could have you know, the little steps that you're going to take on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And, and, you know, and then as we kind of wrap up here, and and I would also, you know, illustrate that I think that um, the eventual outcome, uh, one, there's no, you know, it's all subjective, but it's also whether you won, lost, whatever, is not necessarily correlated to how you have been able to navigate these. I would say, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know how you feel about my theory, but I would think that after their first bout, 
even though Rocky lost, that I don't think <laughs> I don't think he was suffering from uh, imposter syndrome, but Apollo probably was because it was a little easy for him up to that point, and he didn't expect it to go that way. Uh, but Rocky had already leaned into an uncomfortable situation. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think I agree. I'm a big Rocky fan too, by the way. I mean, I think your point is well taken, also, and and I would add that sometimes those those long-term goals can actually get in our way too, right? Because like if you're so hyper-focused on this one thing and then it doesn't work out, mm-hmm. well, then you're completely blocked and can't even move forward. So by focusing on the sort of next fi- the next match, the next boxing match versus being the champion of the world, who knows what's possible? Maybe being champion of the world doesn't end up being the outcome but it's something again that you hadn't even imagined was possible. Right. Right. And so that's the point is, and again, part of the mindset of this work is being present, right. Being present in the moment, not five years from now or three years from now, but like taking as much from this moment as you can and let, and let's see what happens. What's possible. Excellent. Well, Carrie, thanks for being with us. Where can our listeners learn more about you, your work, your podcast? Yeah. So I have a website. It's um, tellmethis.com. There you can find information about my work um, as a coach and the podcast. There's a link to the podcast. And if you, the podcast is called Tell Me This and it's on all the regular, you know, Spotify, Apple and stuff. So yeah. Excellent. Well, we thank Dr. Carrie Borkowski for being here on the Authority Podcast. And we're going to put the information in the show notes about her book, Dancing with Discomfort, where to find it. You can get it from John Cat Educational. You can uh, get it through other channels where books are sold um, and her website and her other work as well. And uh, make sure you subscribe to The Authority if you want more in-depth author interviews such as these, uh, including interviews that Jethro will conduct and other folks across our network. And visit our website, thepodcast.network, to learn more about all of our shows. Cool. Thank you, Ross. It's been a pleasure. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E.